1: Hello and welcome to Irregular Bitches, the sometimes expletive-laden midlife podcast for women of a certain age, a certain mood, a certain temperature and very much of a certain time of life. Of that, we are certain. (laughs) I'm Sarah Kaywood, mum, wax flogger and former TV personality. Former? Maybe not. Uh, My esteemed co-host is Louise Mitchell, mum of teens, hypnotherapist extraordinaire and kitchen mixologist. Louise, what's the newest cocktail specialty? Do we have one?
2: Well, I'm still wanging out the margaritas, love, in my Nutribullet. I haven't moved on from them. I love
1: it. You know what? Why? If it ain't broke, don't fucking fix it. Don't fix
2: it. They are are delicious. They are delicious. And I've been, um, that's how I've been drinking tequila since I had to stop doing tequila shots when I was at university, aged about 21. I am now 51 and I've started being able to do Mm -hmm. tequila shots again. Hooray! (laughs) <laughs> what because you years. have them in a margarita
1: because no, you
2: no, haven't do a shot no no so I've been drinking margaritas the entire time but now I discovered this Christmas when somebody offered me a tequila shot gave it a go nailed it mate so 30 years it's taken me and I'm back on the tequila shots. She's back in the room. Why did you have to stop doing them at age
1: 21
2: um <laughs> because we had a house party at university. We had pre-drinks before mm. anybody knew about pre-drinks, before everybody else arrived. And mm. um, and I had to go to bed. And when I woke mm. up in the morning, not only did I wake up in my flatmate's bed, nothing happened, mm. um, I was naked. And I couldn't find my clothes. And I found my clothes, and they were in the washing machine where I had washed them, because apparently I had been ill and... Walked naked through the party to put my clothes in the washing machine.
1: No, no worries! That is <laughs> horrific and brilliant all at the same time. Oh, but I bet you had... I bet the boys were like, hmm, banging bod."
2: Buddy. I have no idea. I have no recollection. And I didn't drink tequila again for 30 years so, as a shot. So you were shot. like, you were like,
1: nobody's seeing that again. I do Oh, no. that's... But at least, but I I love the fact that even in your drunken stupor, you were like, must wash vomit clothes. Yes, exactly. Must wash vomit,
2: must wash vomit clothes. (laughs) I know, I got my priorities right, didn't care about being naked, must ensure I have clean clothes. (laughs) (laughs) I love
1: it. That is brilliant. On that note, should we crack on with today's guest? Let's.
2: When you asked me, I really toyed with, am I going to divulge this or not? And I thought, fuck it, why not? You got it. It's
1: brilliant. It's brilliant. I absolutely love it.
2: Irregular.
1: Bitches. Our guest today is a GP, women's health doctor and registered member of the British Menopause Society. You can find her on Instagram as The Menopause Medic, busting menomyths, bringing the truth, advice and a truly wonderful bedside manner. Well worth following for her no-nonsense advice and empathy. Oh, and she's going to tell us all about testosterone today and its role in all things midlife. Welcome, The Menopause Medic, Dr. Finula Barton.
3: Yay! Hello, ladies. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me. That was a wonderful introduction. I got, like, warm and fuzzy inside.
1: I am so excited. I've got so many questions to ask you, uh, some of which you've actually already answered on WhatsApp for me, but I need to now share with a nation of midlifers. Definitely need to do that. Right. What, should, what can we plunder Finn for, Lou?
2: What should we ask her? <laughs> Well, you've got testosterone at the top of your list, haven't haven't you? And I've got a question I, I'd quite like to ask before you jump in, if that's all right.
1: Yeah, go for and it.
2: Because um, I'm really interested to know why, um, when we first speak to our GP, the conversation is around, or certainly was for me, is around oestrogen and progesterone. Um, but we know that testosterone is in the mix too. So I was wondering why that isn't thrown in there initially, if you wouldn't mind explaining that, please.
3: So there's a couple of reasons. Um, And the first one is, you know, lack of research and um, a slight reluctance to accept testosterone as part of of mainstream hormone replacement therapy. Um, I think, you know, testosterone has always been seen as the male hormone. And even though, you know, subspecialist um, doctors have always known that it was important for female um, reproductive and other health and wellness markers, um, it's only really um, sort of fairly recently become more commonplace and well known about um, and as a result there hasn't been any big you know, large scale randomised control trials looking at what testosterone therapy um, you know, benefits and what the risks and uh, all of those things are. We have got a wealth of what we would call anecdotal and retrospective data, so information that we've gathered from clinicians who've been using testosterone therapy for several uh, years. Um, And uh, but that's not as strong evidence as some of the bigger sort of trials and things that we have around estrogen and progesterone hormone replacement therapy. There is actually um, a, a part of the NICE guidance, the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, which kind of provides evidence based guidance for all medical practitioners, not just general practitioners. Um, and you know, in the menopause management section, there is reference to testosterone and and, and its potential benefits. Um, but what's um suggested based on the research is that the most important hormone to replace from a symptom perspective. Um, and from a long term health and longevity perspective, is the estrogen. So it makes most sense to get that on track first okay. so that you can make sure that somebody's adequately replaced with that, with the safeguards of the progesterone alongside it for those women who need progesterone. Um, and then once somebody is sort of stabilized and replete in sufficient estrogen, if there are still ongoing issues, and specifically, The recommended indication for using testosterone is for something called female androgen deficiency syndrome which is a loss of libido, difficulty with sexual arousal um, uh, combined with a low blood testosterone level or free androgen index and so if a woman has you know been using estrogen and progesterone for a long time but still has those residual symptoms that's the only um, recommended indication for using testosterone um, in, you know during perimenopause and menopause um, and um, and so I think that that just hasn't filtered down yet into um, into common practice. The other big issue is there aren't any licensed testosterone products for women in the UK. And for a GP to prescribe something, sign their signature to a prescription, mm-hmm. actually um, what we prefer to do is prescribe licensed medications and drugs because we know that there's less risk associated with those. Because we don't have a licensed testosterone product, it actually then involves quite a lot of clinical risk. And if a clinician doesn't really fully understand the pros, cons, etc., and can't counsel their patient effectively, then they shouldn't be prescribing testosterone because it wouldn't be appropriate. That right,
2: makes okay. perfect sense.
3: Thank and you what very does,
1: much. I mean... A lot of women will, well, I think, you know, you and I have mentioned this before, a lot lot of women will be like, but that's a male hormone. So can you explain for the Luddites amongst us exactly what testosterone does in women? Because we have testosterone, don't we? Obviously.
3: We do so. You know, in our reproductive years, um, we often produce more testosterone in our in menstrual cycles than we do estrogen, wow. um, and it's a really important hormone for reproductive and sexual function. So it's an important hormone for regulating um, the reproductive cycle and thus our reproductive potential. Um, it's also really important during our um, reproductive years for maintaining normal bone and muscle strength. Um, It can also be really um, important for maintaining normal cognitive function, normal mental health. And we've got testosterone receptors in all various different parts of the body, which would indicate that it also has a role in things like um, oral health, skin health, eye health, um, gastrointestinal health um, and urological health. So that, you know, the bladder and the bowel and all of those sort of things um, but we still don't have a huge amount of research into the the um, the effects of testosterone in, in women. Um, we've got a lot more data supporting the use of the, that hormone um, as a replacement hormone in men. Um, but we know that we produce it during our reproductive years. We know that we become deficient in it from about our mid-30s. Or not deficient in it. Testosterone levels de- tend to start falling from about our mid-30s and then generally fall over time until they become quite deplete or deficient um in our sort of late forties and early fifties. Um, and um and so a lot of the benefits um that I see of women using testosterone who've been prescribed it for, you know, loss of libido symptoms, actually the benefits that they Uh, that they enjoy are often far greater than that purely reproductive or sexual function um, you know element and often people will find that their clarity of thought has improved their brain fog has lifted, their mood is more stable, they feel less anxious, um, they're second-guessing themselves less, they're able to make decisions much more quickly and easily, but also they tend to feel stronger, um, they tend to be able to maintain their weight a little bit more reasonably, which would suggest that testosterone has a role in metabolism, mm-hmm. which we know it does. Um, and, yeah, so generally there are there are lots more kind of... Um, benefits to using t- testosterone than we, we've we have, you know, fully defined as yet. And I hope this is something that, you know, in the future we'll have more data, more research to support so that more clinicians can be prescribing it early mm-hmm. on rather than it being something it that we can only get when we see a specialist. Yeah.
2: Doesn't it? It sounds, it sounds like it's a it's a miracle miracle hormone. Would we need a blood test for that?
3: Yes. So um, because it's it's something that we don't know as much about, because it's something that hasn't got a licensed medication for it, um, it's best to be more careful when we're prescribing testosterone for women. Um, and it's important to make sure that we are actually treating something appropriately. So... Women may have loss of libido, but as we know, that isn't something that's always purely biological. So uh, loss of sexual desire and, and issues around intimacy can often be multifactorial and there can be biological, social, circumstantial and psychological factors that can impact that. So one of the big things is to make sure that actually that symptom um, coincides with um, a biological measure of low testosterone, or, or what we do is we measure something called free androgen index, which is the amount of testosterone that's actually freely available in the blood that can be then used by the cells. Um, and if the free androgen index is low, and somebody has symptoms, then it would be um, then it would be recommended. And then we also need to monitor blood tests on treatment. So um, normally, I would uh, repeat the blood test within the first three months of somebody being on testosterone therapy. And then, um, if everything stays within normal range, repeat that test on an annual basis, just to make sure that we're not ending up with levels getting too high um, and women coming to harm as a result of the levels getting too high. And, and well, would
1: then. you? And great, well, that's what I was going to say. Like, because I think most women will go, "I'm not going to take testosterone; my voice will break." But that those things don't happen, yeah. no.
3: <laughs> yeah, they can, and I think that's why we have to be careful about it. Right? Okay. Um, so because that can if happen. a woman actually doesn't have low testosterone, if they just if they if they've got symptoms, but the symptoms aren't actually due to low blood testosterone levels, and then you add testosterone in, you run the risk of them then having too much testosterone um, and them having symptoms of androgen excess. Um, and, you know, one of the um, one of the symptoms that can often develop when we've got too much androgen or testosterone in, this, in the bloodstream is it can have an impact on the vocal cords, so the voice can deepen. And that's something that's irreversible. So if that happens as a result of being on testosterone therapy, that can be difficult to then come back to. I did not from. know that. Um, yeah. Um, and that's why we have to be careful to give it in low dose and to make sure that we monitor as we go along. The other one is, you know, developing spots, so lots of sort of oilier skin, oilier mm-hmm. hair, spots to the face. Um, people do sometimes notice a change in the um, in the thickness or in the colour of their soft, downy hair. So, you know, we've all got that sort of soft, downy mm-hmm. hair on the face. Sometimes that can start to change. That tends to be quite a late change. You know, you're not going to just sprout a beard overnight. It's something that will happen gradually and slowly over time. Right. Um, and, oh. you know, and that's why we just need to... It, that's why prescribers need to be... Aware of all these things that you, you can have that discussion yeah. with patients before they then make an informed decision about whether they want to go down that route or not.
2: I have two stubborn, very dark black chin hairs that can literally appear overnight. And if I haven't really inspected my face in the morning, I can be walking around with those bad boys. I did not want those to grow. No, I, I do not want. Have those. they that's got names? People.
1: They need to have but names. Just, what are their names? <laughs> uh, well Bill and Ben? That's it. Bob and Rob. <laughs> <laughs> Bob and Bob.
3: So that can often be actually a symptom of low oestrogen. So then relatively, if you've got lower oestrogen and you've got normal-ish testosterone, you can then, you know, you can end up developing those, you know, one or two uh, recalcitrant dark hairs that that, that, that sort of are uh, a bit of a nemesis. And that, that's another thing that can actually be an oestrogen deficient sim- um, symptom. So So many of the symptoms can overlap. Um, which is why it's important that women have access to, um, you know, a clinician who can take all of that into account. And rather than, it, you know, it, unfortunately, frustratingly within, within the NHS at the moment, you know, um, you often only have a short appointment to discuss one or maybe two issues at a time. Um, and, you know, discussing your irritating facial hair might not be top of the list when you're going in to speak about all the other symptoms you're experiencing in mer- perimenopause and menopause, which are often you know, uh, uh, really debilitating.
2: Yeah, I can cope with my two chin hairs.
3: Irregular. Oh, bitches.
2: Lou did the,
1: what's it called again, the test?
2: The wee test.
1: Yeah, what's Dutch it called? Test. That's it. Dutch. That's it, the Dutch yeah. test, the dried urine test. And did she say that, it did that come back as oestrogen as deficient?
2: No, did it, it not? came back that I had high oestrogen and I needed to take a supplement to clear it.
0: Okay. Oh,
1: Thirty-six percent better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow
2: grow with Shopify. Get a one-dollar-per-month trial period at Shopify.com/work.
0: Shopify.com/work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. I bet you get thirty, thirty. I bet you get thirty, I bet you get twenty, twenty, twenty. I bet you get twenty, twenty. I bet you get fifteen, 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 fifteen. Just fifteen bucks a month. Sold. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash switch.
3: Forty five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. But okay,
1: then I see. would say yeah. that my next question to Finn would then be throughout the menopause perimenopause and menopause journey can can things change so lou had her dutch test probably getting on for a year ago can things Mm -hmm. change on that journey through to post-menopausal
3: absolutely and that's why in some ways actually any kind of testing in perimenopause can be sometimes not hugely valuable because Mm. the nature of the beast in perimenopause is that you're still ovulating, um, that may be regularly or it may be becoming irregular Um, but if you're ovulating you will be producing some oestrogen and that will tend to peak in the early part of your cycle um, as the oestrogen is being produced by the um, maturing follicles in the ovary Um, and then that will start to decline after ovulation and then you'll get a rise in progesterone levels Now, if there's a disruption in that kind of normal process in any way, so if you haven't got a huge number of follicles left, so there's only a few of them maturing compared to previously, you might not produce as much oestrogen. Actually, there will be probably cycles where you have a normal number of follicles and therefore you might produce a normal amount of oestrogen, there may be cycles where you're producing lots more oestrogen or relatively less progesterone. So in perimenopause, what we often see are these big fluctuations where you can have high levels and low levels. But the gradual sort of trend is that over time, those levels are declining because they're going on that downward path. But there is lots of fluctuations in the meantime. So if you test somebody during a cycle where their oestrogen levels are high, it can then be quite misleading because, you know, Lou, you could be going through the next few or four, three or four years thinking actually you're oestrogen dominant when in actual fact it was just a blip that was picked up. Likewise, when we do um, blood tests and such such like in uh, in perimenopausal women. Often we'll have very low oestrogen levels, and we give oestrogen back, but actually that can't—that isn't always hugely reliable because you know two weeks down the line they might have a higher level of oestrogen, and so there is all this fluctuation, which does make it frustratingly unscientific. I think to a lot of people they're like, "Well, hang on a minute, how? It
1: makes it a fucking minefield, a fucking exactly. minefield." You took the words <laughs> out of my mouth. <laughs> I mean, it's just a nightmare. It I mean, because yeah, uh, and Lou, Lou it, you know, it was uh, the Dutch testers. That was it is brilliant, but who can afford to have that every
3: six months? You'd be
1: bankrupt. Oh, yeah, no, Do you know
3: what I mean? Not. It was, it no. was not. And a big part of that is why uh, you know, nice the British Menopause Society don't recommend actually using tests like that because you know, what is the what is the advantage? What is the value? What's much more valuable is actually listening to somebody to find out what their symptoms are because often actually if you get that full picture from a history from the symptoms someone's experiencing um, and the journey they've been on then actually you can get a much better idea of what's likely to be going on and yes Mm. you may well have been estrogen dominant at that time and I think it's important to to, to go through the process of making sure that your body is equipped as well as it can be to make sure that it's excreting excess hormone um, effectively. But there may also be times when your oestrogen is deficient or low, and that might be giving rise to a, a different set of symptoms. And the idea behind hormone replacement therapy, uh, or menopausal hormone therapy, as it's now being called, um, is that if we can boost your levels to a certain sort of minimum baseline, it means that you don't then have those big dips, which can often be the most debilitating part of symptomology. Um, And so if we we just sort of stop you from getting too low, there will probably be times when you are okay or fine with your natural hormone levels. and I see that quite a lot. You know, a lot of perimenopausal women will say, I feel better, but there's still these fluctuations. And I think that that's normal. Um, You know, one of the positives, if you can see it as a positive, is actually when you've then gone through perimenopause and you've become menopausal, you're not fluctuating anymore. You've become, you know, you, your oestrogen is no longer being produced in high quantity from the ovaries. And so it can often make managing symptoms um, a lot more straightforward because it tends to be a kind of. Long-standing low level of hormones that you're treating, rather than these big fluctuations that we see in. Peri- sweet menopause.
1: freedom. I look forward to it. Yeah, sweet
3: freedom, and that's the difficult thing, isn't it? You think, oh, gosh, <laughs> am I now looking forward to that? That's yeah. the strange yes. thing to be considering. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I really no, am. I, I am. Although I have <laughs> to yeah. say, so going it can back, be a
1: yeah, well, going but going back to the sex thing because. Um, You know, my husband edits this. So I have to sort of self-edit as I go along. Otherwise, he'll be like, really, Sarah? I really have to put that out there. But we've got children who are eight and ten. We're both really busy. I get excited to get into bed... at night because I want to read a magazine and he wants to read a book and I don't think and this is my other theory and Lou knows this I've got a theory that the longer women go without sex the less they want it and the longer that men go without sex the more they want it and and, and therein lies the rub no pun intended um, and so Good it's sometimes n- it's sometimes not just testosterone it's just life but I do also life. think it's life. And Lou will Lou will be the one to tell me this that you because she's very good about making sure she makes time for Duncan. You know she makes time for intimacy, and I think that too often men are perimenopausal women just go. It's so low down the list of priorities they just let it slide, and before you know it, you're, you've got a flatmate, not a husband or a lover.
3: Yeah, and I think that that's a really important thing to discuss actually when we're talking about libido loss because it's very easy for you know to become medicalized and become something that needs to be treated with a medication but as you've just heard there you know there are potential pitfalls to using testosterone um, and actually I think when you're experiencing a symptom like loss of libido or um, loss of sexual desire or difficulty with arousal it's important to consider it from all different angles um, and is there you know circumstantial issues Um, and if it's something that you want to nurture and nourish actually lose right you do need to actually make time for it um and but that can be a really difficult thing to do if your priorities are that long to-do list you've got to the end of the long to-do list and then you just want to go to sleep because actually you know if you don't sleep then tomorrow is going to feel worse Um, and where do you then slot it in and so Um, There is an element of you have to use it or lose it. I hate that phrase, but, you know, actually, unless you unless your body's being reminded of how good it can feel to be touched intimately or to feel sensual and sexual. um, It's not going to then mount that response to seek that again. You Mm -hmm. do have to sort of remind the body of how brilliant it can feel in that great big surge of dopamine that you get with an orgasm and you know if you can't make time to do it with your partner it's fine to make time to do it on your own so that then yes. actually you do feel like you're in the mood to um, be intimate with your partner when you know when your timetables collide and, and yeah you can actually enjoy that time together so um and I think the same could be said you know of men. like I think it if there's a difficulty, there's a mismatch, and this is what they often talk about, that you know, in, in sex therapy, that there can often be this enormous mismatch with sexual desire, mm. and it's about both parties coming back from that using all different strategies. But it's a really interesting, you know, aspect and part of, of medicine, and it's something that you know is incredibly common in the group of women that I spend time helping. Um, but it isn't ever a simple, straightforward hormonal issue
1: so can I just say because you just mentioned at the end of the very long to-do list that the irregular bitches are now saying ladies this one number one on the to-do list have a wank number one <laughs> on the to-do list have a little bit of have a little bit of a tickle go on yeah get up, get, know, get a she, rabbit she, out she
2: has <laughs> a way with words doesn't
1: she poetic <laughs> let's but, um, all wank
0: wank wank
2: wank it's really good Man, for can it is, isn't? It out. i can't cope with it what really <laughs> i don't want one i can't cope with 5 i oh uh, <laughs> i'm gonna say five more
1: did you know you can get clit suckers did I you know, know, that? know that
2: i only found yeah. out the
1: other day every day's a school day you can actually get yeah. like vibrators that one bit goes inside you and the other bit gently sucks on your clitoris there you go well this is the thing there's
3: all these amazing products I think yeah. that we need to be more open about. Yes. there shouldn't be any shame or stigma in wanting sexual pleasure. And um, and um, what's also another thing to bear in mind is actually having a good orgasm. It does, you know, then sort of set off this cascade of quite incredible um, neuro um, and endocrine messages through does the brain really? and body that can be really helpful to get you off to sleep. So actually, if you're really struggling to get to sleep and your husband's snoring next to you give them a nudge <laughs> and say actually I need some I need some help getting to sleep please um but yeah, and that's, I that's don't a know a joke but there is a I don't well in. I I
1: don't know a husband alive that's gonna say no do you exactly
3: because they have very um, responsive sexual desire so you know as soon as they get that sort of you know visual or or audible cue that it might happen you know they're the mechanism that then works within their body is is almost instantaneous but for women hard on. You know, that process of feeling um aroused can can rely upon several other factors and uh, and that's why there is another bit of a mismatch when it comes to um heterosexual uh, intimacy certainly
2: see i've got a little bit of advice on the back of that
3: go on then Ooh,
2: sometimes just get started yeah, just get started. You may not mm. be crawling the walls, thinking, "Oh, I'm mad for this," but once you get started, it doesn't take that long to get into it. And it may be not very high on your priority list, but sometimes I think it does need to be prioritized. So,
3: yeah, that's mm. my bit
2: of advice: just start
3: and taking little opportunities during the day as well, like to just right. touch your partner, like you know, or kiss them um, and be um, affectionate, because that will then often, you know, give rise to building or mounting desire that then helps mm-hmm. in terms of wanting to take anything a little bit further so yeah those little things those kisses on the lips or you know brushing past and a squeeze on the bottom or <laughs> not suggesting anyone should grape anybody by the way but you just know those intimate moments with your partner
1: <laughs> Andy loves to have a little cup it will pass me have a little um, cup i'm like oh i used to say to people that did that back in the 90s because it did used to happen i used to say don't touch what you can't afford <laughs>
3: Mm. <laughs> well, least, I th- isn't that tragic though? I think we probably all got stories from when we were growing up, ne- not necessarily as as empowered as we are now, and had to experience that kind of thing. And I suspect, yeah. obviously, in the entertainment industry, it was prolific.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, can you imagine anyone? Uh, do you have daughters, Finn? Do you I do, have a daughter? Yeah. Or you- yeah, well, can you imagine? And Lola and well, I, I have, each. so we all have daughters. Can you imagine our daughters putting up with that? Autumn was seriously, somebody's going to get a right hook. If they even go anywhere near her. She is feisty, no, and it would also
2: literally take take anyone out. Literally,
1: but Isn't also that great, they know though, they can. Yes. They yeah, can we have put that.
2: up with it. We put up with yeah. it as it's, well. It's like, oh, this is what happens when you when you're at work. I mean, I've I've got a list as long as your arm of really inappropriate behaviour to you know me in my twenties. And like you say, mm. Sarah, I'm sure you're. Yours was even worse. Well, that was, I mean, I wasn't just
1: joking. That was my stock answer. That was my stock answer for making light of the situation, but getting out of it was don't touch what you can't afford. And then I would try and extricate Mm. myself. Um, So all joking aside, but yeah, the times have changed. And for that, we are forever grateful. Speaking of times changing, Finn. I've got to ask you about my, about drinking, because this is a very new thing. But And Lou knows about this because she'll say, did you have a nice time last night? I'd be like, yeah, it was lovely. Uh, Drank a bit too much. Woke up this morning. Threw up. I never, or sometimes I don't even get drunk. I I have three drinks and I just feel a bit sicky and have to go to bed.
3: What the fuck is happening? So we don't really know exactly why it happens, but it is really common that people become um, increasingly intolerant to alcohol during, particularly during perimenopause, um, and it's less so postmenopausally. In my, you know, in my experience, so a lot of my postmenopausal women actually don't have a problem with hangovers at all. Right, it's um, so another Ooh. silver lining Again, there. So um, <laughs> the forward too.
1: yeah. <laughs> bring it on (laughs) Um,
3: but um there's um uh, when our hormones are fluctuating we've got highs and we've got lows in terms of estrogen what it can uh, do is it can have um, a negative impact on things like your gastrointestinal tract um so actually your gut might be you know more sensitive or less sensitive it might be able to process that alcohol less well um, and that's one impact um, another thing that can happen when estrogen levels are fluctuating is that we, um, our body's histamine response changes. So histamine is a really powerful chemical that's released from some of our blood cells in response to, you know, uh, external stimuli, um, and it's most common in allergic responses. So, for example, you get an insect bite. Um, and you get that big red rash, you know, or, yeah. or swelling um, area around the insect bite because the blood has gone there and released lots of histamine into the local area, and it gets swollen, and it gets red, and it gets sore. What can happen during perimenopause is our histamine response becomes hyperactive. So drinking things like alcohol, or a really common one is people um, becoming intolerant to things like gluten and dairy um, Mm -hmm. consuming those products then um, triggers this histamine response so you get swelling and you get fluid in the lining of the gut which means then the gut isn't functioning properly you're not clearing things properly um, and therefore you're more likely to feel unwell as a result so that's mechanism number two Uh, another mechanism is that actually um, estrogen levels um well, alcohol can actually increase estrogen levels so when you're consuming alcohol what we tend to see is that increases estrogen so if you're using hrt for example um, or you're at a part of your cycle where your estrogen is pretty good and then you have loads of alcohol what might be happening is then you've got too much oestrogen and then of course what you're going to have is a big downer from it when the oestrogen is then out of your system which can then sometimes give rise to really profound oestrogen deficient symptoms like the hot sweats hot sweats and the anxiety and the doom and gloom and just feeling absolutely wretched so it's ultimately the short answer to that question is because of the fluctuating hormones Uh, but Uh there's a number of different mechanisms that sort of contribute to it I think what's important is that, you know, you perhaps listen to your body and actually if your body's telling you that alcohol isn't making you feel good, then, you know, trying to, you know, reduce, cut out or maybe change the alcohol that you're drinking. A lot of people find that they get this response um, in, uh, in uh, you know, uh, when they're drinking certain types of alcohol, so things wine. like red or white wine. <laughs> L- yeah. Wine, Lou and I like, wine, <laughs> wine, wine, wine. And often it's the sulfites or, you know, the additives that goes into those sort of things that can be what's generating the response. So, you know, if you enjoy... Um, drinking alcohol um, and you don't want to cut or cut out or cut uh, cut down or cut out, then think about just trying different types of alcohol. So things like a gin and tonic, for example, you might tolerate Mm. much better than a glass of wine. Um, But just bear in mind to try, try not to drink more than 14 units a week, which is obviously the recommended maximum for women. But also bear in mind that actually alcohol itself can give rise to lots of biological stress in the body, which might in turn make you know, menopausal or perimenopausal symptoms worse. Mm. It can often make our sleep disrupted, which can then have a terrible effect the the following day. And, 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 you know, alcohol too frequently can have a negative impact on our liver, on our metabolism, on our weight management, all of that sort of thing. It can also push blood pressure up. So, you know, I wouldn't ever advocate that, you know, people drink too much. Um, But, you know, if if you're having problems with it, it's worthwhile thinking about, you know, what it could be that's contributing and thinking about making changes accordingly.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've definitely cut down now on my drinking and because also the what you just said about being allergic to dairy, Lou knows that I'm now slightly lactose intolerant. And I had a bowel resection about seven years ago, so that doesn't help with any of these things. So no. my gastrointestinal tract is slightly sensitive anyway. But I was under the illusion it was some sort of enzyme that we that we are become deficient in. Is that not the case? Is it more a hormone thing?
3: No, you still have the you still have the enzyme. Um, but I suppose you know if if you're getting more of that alcohol into your bloodstream for whatever reason, the enzyme might be overwhelmed. Mm. Um, but um, you know it's more likely to do with the the hormone levels itself um, and the impact that they have on your body's immune and gastrointestinal response
1: and actually that makes sense doesn't it Lou because you can feel much worse at different times you'll go I was fine last week and I I got absolutely obliterated and then I had two drinks last night and I felt terrible so it's probably Mm. to do with where you are in your cycle and where the hormones are and where you're in your
3: cycle you know what you've had to eat and drink beforehand you know whether you've you know already got a bit of sensitivity in your gastrointestinal before you go and the 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 alcohol that you've chosen to consume um it can you know it can all have an impact irregular bitches
2: could we talk about people who can't take hrt now because i'm conscious Mm. that that does affect a lot of people for a lot of you know different reasons a couple of my friends fall into that category and they're always saying oh you know it's so easy for most people they just go to the doctor and take hrt yeah that's easy." um so i wondered if you had any sort of take-homes that we could give for people that can't use hrt please
3: so i feel quite strongly and passionately that hrt isn't the only answer um, even for women who use HRT it is very rarely the only answer because as we talked about earlier it's very um, unlikely that it's just hormone changes that are, that, that are the problem here it's those hormone changes in the context of cultural social and circumstantial and psychological circumstances You know, so um, I think it's important to take all of those symptoms and actually think about what element of this could be biological, what element could be extrinsic Um, And if there are ways to manage those extrinsic aspects of of a symptom, then think about addressing those. Um, I think it's hugely important that you get the sort of four pillars of health and well-being um, robustly in place, whether you choose or are allowed to, to take HRT for perimenopause and menopause or not. Um, and they are first of all um, actually one of the most important things to do is make sure that you're staying fit and active because if you're exercising on a regular basis actually you're supporting your body in a whole range of ways but you're also going to help to sort of um, navigate the transition probably a little bit you know more evenly Um, and at this stage I would suggest it's not all about doing cardio anymore it's about changing up your routine doing things that actually make you feel good and makes your body feel um, happy and releases endorphins rather than your exercise for punishment or weight loss or anything like that. that so it can often be helpful to think about picking up some weights at this point so thinking about weight training start with light weights take some uh, you know tuition don't just start swinging weights around for no reason on your own it's what i did and pulled my back recently um (laughs) but also things like pilates which are really good for connecting the mind and the body um and also strengthening all those core muscles that we're going to need to keep us upright and strong and tall as we move through our later years Um, and also anything that's kind of resistance work and weight bearing is really beneficial for our Um, bone mineral density so it helps to reduce the risk of developing um, estrogen related um, bone -hmm. mineral density loss osteopenia and osteoporosis which is a big problem particularly in those who can't use hrt because we do tend to lose bone mineral density sort of um, uh, you know, on on a, on a rapid basis throughout our 40s and into our 50s. So exercise, I think, is an absolute um, you know first thing to consider um, for, for for whether you're taking HRT or not. But particularly in women who can't use HRT, um, the other thing is nutrition. And I, you know, I'm going to stay in my lane here. I'm not a nutritionist, but there are loads of things that we can do within our diet and what we consume that can really help to support us um, in, in a nice way. Um, it might be worthwhile, people, you know, looking looking up a nutritionist looking at some you know specific information around that but again some basics and making sure that you're getting lots of omega-3s in the diet to help with your cognitive function and your um Uh, cardiovascular health making sure that you're eating a rainbow of colors so the more colors we get through the diet um, in terms of fruits and vegetables the more antioxidants we have the better immune systems we have the more balanced our hormones are Um, making sure that you're getting plenty of protein so you know our hormones um, you know are only as good as the stuff that they're made of and uh, and the cells that they can um, help and if you've not got enough protein going in um, then the body doesn't function very well making sure you've got plenty of water so you know often I find at this stage in life when we've got the long to do list and we're at the bottom of it one of the things people forget is to drink enough water make sure you're drinking enough to make sure that your urine is a clear sort of uh, light straw colour and that means that you're well hydrated and when your cells are well hydrated they all work better um And um, then one of the other things to consider are using sort of foods that are rich in phytoestrogens. Phytoestrogens aren't estrogens; They're not going to have an estrogenic effect. They don't cause or trigger breast cancer in any way. Um, But what they can do is they can kind of slightly sort of partially, you know, um, help in terms of boosting some of those estrogen deficient symptoms so things like tofu and temper a lot of the sort of foods that we see people in you know the far east eating on a regular basis where actually the experience of menopause and perimenopause is very different to what we experience in western culture so it's interesting to think I'm about that. that so exercise nutrition stress reduction so i did a post a couple of months ago on my instagram about you know is it stress or is it perimenopause? actually it's really hard to unpick because our stress response has a direct response on our female reproductive hormones Um, and actually when you're chronically stressed or when you're very stressed on an intermittent basis that can inhibit your reproductive hormones and it can actually stop you ovulating if you don't ovulate you don't you don't produce estrogen so when we're stressed it can actually give rise to estrogen deficient symptoms and so you don't know sometimes which is the chicken and which is the egg Um, In that situation, if you're not able to take HRT to help balance that out, then really connecting and finding ways to manage any stressful stimuli, a lot of which are extrinsic and you might not have control over, but it's about finding different coping mechanisms. So I think talking therapy can be really helpful in this instance, things like cognitive behavioural therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, but anything that helps to down-regulate the stress response. So a lot of people like acupuncture, reflexology. I really enjoy my Pilates and yoga practice from this perspective because it really helps me to... Center um, and to feel, um, you know, more connected from a mind-body uh, perspective. Going for a walk in nature is a very good thing to relax you and to and to keep you sort of centered and grounded in the earth. One of the other things that there's been lots of uh, popular, I suppose, opinion about recently is cold water therapy or or cold immersion um, mm-hmm. therapy. When we um, immerse ourselves in cold water or when we expose ourselves to cold water in a safe way. What that does is it really triggers our parasympathetic nervous system, which then directly inhibits your sympathetic nervous system. And it's the sympathetic nervous system that mounts the stress response. So by doing things like regularly, you know, outdoor cold water swimming, for example, or what I tend to do is just have 15 to 30 seconds of cold water at the end of my shower. It can just really help to stimulate and balance those two sort of um, antagonistic parts of our central nervous system. Um, but yeah, talking therapy can be really good at this at this stage because we've often got quite a lot that needs to be unpacked or that we're carrying around with us and actually causes mm. us to feel perpetually stressed. The fourth pillar is sleep, which is in itself a complete difficult one to do. But if yeah. you've got the other three Poor pillars Liv. in place, <laughs> you're more likely to get that fourth pillar in place too. Um, but it is often, I think, the hardest thing to get back. But I don't know about you, but if you've ever worked night shifts... Um, you know, I would regularly be on the tube on the way home from an any night shift and people would look at me as if I was a drunk because I just couldn't function, I was all over the place and I hadn't had a drop of alcohol, I'd just been awake all night. And I think that, for me, that reminds me of how detrimental not sleeping um, on a regular basis can become. It just it, it just destroys your energy levels. It really impacts your brain fog. It can have a really negative effect on things like your mood, your anxiety levels, your ability to cope. And uh, it is, I think, the trickiest thing to get right. But if you can work hard on getting your sleep right, then if you can get all four of those pillars in place, by and large, I think most people will survive without HRT, but it's just how accessible and how achievable getting that, that all of those things in place are because it's quite a lot of work it's quite a lot of effort to get everything yeah. on track I mean and, I think the, you know the you up micromanaging your life which is yeah pretty boring and stressful so it's all about it's, it's about balance but that's what I normally go through with women who can't use HRT but there are also lots of other medicines that can really help that aren't HRT Um, And I think that they've often been given a bad rap. Antidepressants, you know, are a really helpful form of medication that are completely safe and that really help with sleep disturbance. They can massively Mm -hmm. help with anxiety and low mood symptoms. But big studies have also indicated that some of the antidepressant medications can also be really helpful for the vasomotor symptoms, the hot flushes and the sweats. So they're a really important part um, of menopause care, both for women who can take HRT um, uh, and for women who can't. For breast cancer survivors for example there are other options oxybutynin amitriptyline gabapentin um, and there are going to be more drugs coming on the market um at you know in in the not too distant future that can be helpful for those women too so it's never a you know I, I hate to ignore that group of people because I think that they're really important. Yeah, um, but there is there are lots of things that you can do. Yeah,
1: Thank and you. I think the unco- the uncomfortable truth I think really with with everything that you, if you're struggling, because some people sail through their perimenopause and menopause, or even mental health. Yeah. I think the uncomfortable truth is. it starts with you you've you've got to sort of make changes you can't just carry on eating junk food drinking too much not exercising um and you know and allowing stress to take over and and expect to pop a pill or take a supplement and make it all better and that's one of the things I'm not preaching that's one of the things that I have had a massive transformational journey over the last three to four years realizing how much of an impact my former lifestyle was having on my mental health my marriage um, my relationship with my children and finn i can't tell you lou knows this i am like a different person because i had a word with myself and i had to stop mm-hmm. doing like things it i had to start doing others
2: yeah, Irregular bitches. So I am sleep deprived most of the time at the moment. While I try and get everything sorted out, what is the the few things that I really can't be f- asked to do? I can't be asked to eat properly. I can't be asked to exercise. Mm. I can't be. I literally, I'm not. I'm not prioritising myself in a in a positive way. I'm mm. you know very much, very lethargic. Um, and trying to make the effort to cook decent meals. Particularly because my teenagers now pretty much aren't in the house. So I haven't even got them as an excuse because I did mm. use them as an excuse to eat more healthily. Um, so I am I am doing some things like I am making myself eat more fruit and berries and that sort of thing. Because that's mm. a really quick, easy solution. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm not being too hard on myself because I am working on getting, you know, everything, the holistic approach, isn't it? Looking yeah. at everything yeah. Yeah, um, and, and so I'm being kind to myself and saying, you're not going to eat like crap and lounge around the whole time, all the time, but just in the meantime, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this. And do you know what I'm going to do? What? I'm going to prioritise yoga. I'm going to prioritise yes. yoga. It's mental health and it's movement. And I'm going to bloody do it and I'm going to stop talking about it. And you know what? It. That's the thing
1: in Catlin Moran, Moran's book. She talks about the never-ending to-do list. And a couple of times, Finn says. Uh, when you get to the end of the to-do list. So I don't know what yours looks like, Finula, but yeah. mine doesn't end. But <laughs> it well, just rolls into in It in. <laughs> rolls into tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> but Catelyn Moran always talks about how the last thing on your to-do list is start yoga or go to yoga. And it's the thing that she never gets around to doing. And it just made me laugh so much. It's a... Uh, that is the thing and yet that is so important Yoga is a brilliant thing to do That should be
3: the top, at so the, top m- to be. the movement piece Should be at the top mm. And do you know what, I actually I agree with you I think it is quite hard to roll that mat out And get, to get started But in the same way that we were talking about intimacy earlier It's just about getting started yes. So often if you keep your expectations low And you just say, do you know what, I'm going to lie down And I'm going to do a Savasana for a minute a, Everyone, a, what was that? a Savasana You know when you just lie flat and you just breathe
2: oh I can do this. it's like it's yeah, the most relaxed of
3: the yoga <laughs> poses um but there's no pressure with place there and then if you've got your mat out and you lie down on it for a minute yes. the chances are you're then going to want to go and do a little bit more um and so uh, my point being that instead of, sort of setting yourself up to say I'm going to do an hour of yoga every morning before I start my day I think that's a big thing to, to, to take off but if you say I'm going to do you know five minutes Um, in the morning before I have my shower or five minutes on the floor before I get into bed at night, starting to put those little tweaks, those little habits, stacks into your life, they will start to pay off. Sometimes I think the easiest thing to do is to go out for a walk. It doesn't take any effort. And Mm. often getting outside, moving your body, you can go as fast or as slow as you want. You don't need a dog. Dog often helps to stop you looking a bit odd. Um, But being outside in nature, you know, seeing the sky... Breathing in air, taking some deep Mm. lungfuls of breath, can actually be an incredibly powerful moving meditation because you can then listen to the birds, listen to the rustle of the leaves, you know, and and kind of focus on other things rather than a lot of the things that are kind of whirring around your mind. So, from an insomnia perspective, actually doing five minutes of just some gentle breathing, rather than saying you're going to do a full-blown yoga class, or going out for an evening walk. Might be a nice thing to do before then settling down with mm. your book and all of those I other things. That. I'm sure you already do. And magnesium do can really help. And I, I you're probably on some already, but magnesium supplements can sometimes be helpful. Yeah, <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> not
1: trying, I'm Really dry. <laughs> we um, the other thing I think that perhaps we mentioned this before we we started recording, but I think the the, the to do list, the fabled to do list. Um, We can never get to the end of it. I think that's one of the problems with midlife is that it's overwhelming Mm. the amount of stuff that we've got to do. And you know what I've started doing, which I found quite revelatory? I've started giving myself a break for not baking a cake, for not finishing the crochet I started I still can't re- I mean I can crochet but rudimentary I wanted to get really good at it I learned how to do it I stopped and the other thing that we did recently was we finally got rid of the greenhouse because it, I used, it used to laugh at me I'd come out and it would go haha you're not gonna grow fruit bitch and um and so i said to andy let's just make the garden bigger and because i can't keep looking at that thing and thinking one day i will grow tomatoes because it was making me feel less do you know what i mean and 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 making me feel really stressed so it's gone now and when i'm retired and i say this and when the kids have gone it won't happen then either but maybe my pipe dream will be to have a greenhouse full of homegrown stuff and you know i'll be just horticulturally... not now just
2: not
1: now i know i, I think I you've just you've
2: removed it i think that's brilliant yeah i just get think it out I, of I your
1: sight and just it is prioritizing the to-do list isn't it what's on there that you know if there's something that's looking at you and laughing just take it off if it's not you know life yeah. or death just take it off
3: get or delegate it because oh, yeah. that's my biggest problem is i keep them all on my list and i actually thought <laughs> this morning i was like um I'm just going to give this task to you because you're a better equipped to do it, and B have masses of time.
0: Um, yeah. But I'm
3: very reluctant to do that because I in my in my midlife I have developed a need to be in control. Oh, um, no. But I and actually letting go of that control and letting other people take responsibility for things is, is a big thing. But I Easy, think one of the other reasons why, yeah, <laughs> yeah, why the to do list is such an issue, is that. We've got so much more on it because we are so more connected. So if we think about to how our mothers perhaps um, experienced their perimenopause and menopause journeys, they weren't exposed to the entire world through a little app on their um, connected mobile phone on a minute by minute basis. They weren't being bombarded with images of midlife women growing a great big greenhouse full of bountiful <clears throat> fruit and vegetables. It was. It didn't even cross their mind that that was something that they should be on their list. You know, they were... Um, and she I think isn't. that there is there is an element of that is that we are so bombarded and exposed to these kind of images um, and expectations, and it's, I don't think it's anyone's fault necessarily, but we can often internalise that and put that on our list. And actually, it doesn't necessarily need to be a priority. Um, mm. But you know, if it's something that you enjoy, if you enjoy growing fruit and vegetable, when you enjoy growing, then, then it actually it should be quite high up on that list. Um, but it's just impossible to to put that there sometimes, isn't it? Anyway. Yeah. Oh, love it. Uh, I don't it think is, I have anything like that on my list.
1: <laughs> well, that's because you're better than me. No, I. It's because I have. I, I'm. I'm not even a perfectionist. I just. I love the idea of. I'm basically a seventy-year-old woman trapped in a fifty year old body and I want to (laughs) garden and I want to crochet and I want to bake and I want to do all those things and I can't because um I've got you know I've got four jobs and two young children and Lou's about to move house and you know it's just chaos (sighs) in an organized way but that's why I just think and then that and mindfulness is another thing is is just enjoy the chaos sort of embrace the children growing up and having to go to school Mm. or sending them off to university or moving house or improving your house embrace all that because who knows what tomorrow is going to bring and I might never get to grow my tomatoes so I'm going to make damn sure I enjoy the journey on the way there do you know what I mean so.
3: Well, just reduce your expectations. Get one of those little bucket pots that you can just show outside the back yes, door. Yes, that's a great so idea. So instead of having a full-blown greenhouse and going big, yeah. just that's start small. idea, Sarah. <laughs> yeah, I mean we, and then you can prove too. yourself that you can do it yeah I mean I've got, don't I've got talk that. to me about dying plants
1: I have grown tomatoes uh, it was uh, and, and the, the crop of green tomato chutney that I made was oh,
2: amazing
1: mm. um listen we should oh, let we Finn go. go because she's got to crack on with that list I do um, list, uh, yeah, yeah I've got to get on with it oh thank you so much you are awesome and I, I feel properly like you've answered loads of questions that I had so I'm really grateful thank you very much
2: me too no
3: problem
1: Time for us to bugger off now back to the hamster wheel of housework errands to-do lists and possibly tantrum's me, not my kids. Our hearty thanks go to my long-suffering other half Andy for producing and editing irregular bitches oh, to ha <laughs> sorry (laughs) i'll start it again our hearty thanks go to that's all right our hearty thanks goes to choposaurus for our music and to our fabulous guest today dr finula barton who you can find on insta at the menopause medic please go follow my final thanks go to lovely lulu one of the few people who can talk me off a cliff of burgeoning rage and always gets the last word in and that is
2: stay cool bitches